Uh, Our passage this morning, I think, provides one of the most definitive statements that exist of what it is to be a Christian. Our view of life because we are followers of Christ. Verse 21, Paul famously states, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What a statement. It is double good news. No matter what happens in our life when our faith is in Christ, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In many ways, I thought about this as kind of the Christian motto, if you will. It encapsulates all that we believe in this life, all that we believe about the future, life, death, eternity. It's all right here. That made me think, what are some other mottos that we might have in our culture? A quick Google search reveals that we have a lot of them that we're familiar with. I'll I'll test your knowledge a bit. Uh, But the official motto of the United States is, in God we trust. See, you get this. Uh, The official gym motto of about every gym in the world is, no pain, no pain. That's it. You got this. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. Rome wasn't built in a day. See, mottos mean something. Uh, In our commonwealth, lastly, united we stand, divided we fall. We could go on and on and on, and these can be a little bit fun. But here's the point. I think all mottos have a context. They didn't just happen. They didn't just become things that we started saying, but rather there was a backstory. There was something else going on that caused that to become what it is. It evolved. There are reasons that followers of Jesus can state that our view of God is expressed by to live as Christ, to die is gain. And that is because, and we will see this in Philippians over and over and over again, that our ultimate joy in this life is found exclusively in the person of Christ. In this life or in all of eternity, our joy is found there, in him. And when we accept that, our lives match the design of the world enabling us to experience joy now that will last forever. So we've seen over these last few weeks that Paul's intent in writing this letter was for the maturity of his friends in Philippi. It was for their spiritual progress. It was for their growth. It was for their development. That's why he wrote, and he wanted them to have this worldview everywhere and at all times that we would be continually shaped by the gospel in such a way that we would think to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So as Paul wrote from his house arrest in Rome, the continual theme throughout this book is that of joy and gratitude because of Christ. Specifically, the emphasis from our passage today is this direct correlation between our growth in him, our personal joy in him, and our view of eternity. So let me ask you this question. What's your motto? What's your personal life statement? What defines success in your life? What or or who exists in your life that if you have it all, then you will have joy? What occupies your thought life on such a level that if that one thing, that one person exists, then you could say, my life is filled with joy? And I think a follow-up to that question is simply this. Is it working? Is your current life motto working for you? Are you experiencing joy? 
I think what Paul wants us to see this morning, that until we can say that us to live as Christ and to die as gain, we'll never experience the fullness of joy that he has for us. So we're going to see a pathway, if you will, of, of seeing it like this. I'm going to mention three parts very quickly this morning as we consider this motto of ours in Christ. First, I want, I want us to have an honest assessment of our spiritual dependence. First. Secondly, an honest assessment of our current reality in life. And then lastly, an honest assessment of life and death. And as we consider these things, my hope and my prayer is that our joy will grow. Our maturity in Christ will grow. All right, first, let's consider an honest assessment of our spiritual dependence and how this affected Paul's life and why he could be joyful. Look back at verse 19. Perhaps this morning you're tempted to think, this all sounds great for the Apostle Paul, but none of us are somebody like him. Maybe you think he was just this spiritual powerhouse of a man that was able to plant churches and disciple men and through his life and letter writing and all the while being persecuted and thrown in prison multiple times. Perhaps you view him as this man's man who could just do everything. Well, in a way, that's sort of true, but as we'll see in this verse, that's actually not accurate. Notice in verse 19, there was no self-sufficiency in Paul at all. All that he did and all that he accomplished, yes, even all of the hard work in which he did, he was physically powered by a spiritual source. It was not himself. Rather, Paul's hope for his deliverance in this particular situation was found in a combination of two things. It was found in the prayers of other Christians and the spirit of Jesus alive inside of him, the Holy Spirit. All the ministry success that was taking place all around him, which was incredible, it was the result of human activity being involved in the spiritual realm. We see just this particular situation in a moment, but notice the ongoing element of confidence that Paul had. He was confident as he wrote this letter. You need to know that the apostle was an educated man. He was experienced. He had done this type of work for years. He knew what he was doing. But his confidence, his hope, his expectation was all based on the reality that people were praying for him. And that the spirit of Jesus was alive inside of him. It wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his hard work. It wasn't his track record. It was because of the prayers of people. It was because of the Holy Spirit inside of him. You see, here's the point. Paul was a, quote, dependent man. He was completely dependent upon someone else. He was dependent upon other people, other than himself, for his own good. Now, I said this required an honest assessment. And I think if we're going to be honest this morning... Do any of us really enjoy being dependent upon anyone else? I don't think so. It goes against everything inside of us. Seriously, who of us actually wants to be dependent upon others? You see, this phenomenon is not just for great ministers like the Apostle Paul. No, rather, this is for all of us who are followers of Christ. It's to see the broader view of our lives that as image bearers of God, we are designed to live by faith in him. 
We are designed to give glory to our king, a continuous exalting of Christ, where our ultimate desire is for his kingdom to come and his will to be done and for our lives to be found within his blessing and the outworking of his providence. That is a spiritual enterprise. Two weeks ago, our parish group invited Marshall Wimhoff uh, to come to our group for dinner. Uh, He was going to be dropping his daughter off at youth group, and he came over and spent the evening with us. If you don't know Marshall, Marshall uh, came out of our church and planted Hope Presbyterian eight years ago. And uh, if you do know Marshall, you know a few things about him. Marshall's an amazing preacher. Marshall is an amazing friend. Marshall is an amazing pastor. He probably still pastors many of you now just because he's so relationally gifted. But here's what he told our group that night. As blessed as he is, as gifted as he is, as talented as Marshall is, he said this, quote, After eight years of planning a church, I've learned one thing. I can't achieve any success apart from prayer. And we all thought how true that is of all of our lives. When we truly see success in this life, it is a result of God at work. As I thought about the literals this week and all that's going on, one verse that stood out to me was from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. And it's here the Apostle Paul calls on Christians to pray for each other at all times. You see, that is what is true of us inside of the spiritual commonwealth, inside of the church. We live to intercede for each other. Well, all the ways that you could apply this, let me simply ask you this. Do you see the power that you possess for the well-being of each other? Do you see the power that you have to grant to other people around you? Technically speaking, in this setting, Paul was the recipient of prayer. He wasn't the one doing the praying at this point. He was the one saying, I can't do my job unless you are praying for me. If I have victory, if I have success, it is because of your prayers. You see, this morning, you and I really can change the world. We really can. That's what the scripture is saying. That's what we can do. The path of joy is found first in our spiritual dependence. All right, secondly, within this pathway of joy, notice verse 20, there's an honest assessment of our situation. I admit, I struggled with this over the past couple of weeks of studying this passage. But there's, there's a principle here that we need to see and then to accept. And it involves our maturity in Christ as stewards of the life that we have in front of us. Here was Paul's reality, and this, this is what I missed at first. Paul was in Rome, and he was in prison. But what we know is that Paul was imprisoned in Rome at least twice in his life. The second time he would die. Scholars believe, though, this was the first time as he wrote this letter. And on this occasion, it was most likely his time where he did not yet know the verdict of what was about to happen in his life. That is, he had been charged with a crime, and he had been sent to Rome to face his judgment. So he was going to stand before the government officials and give an account of why he was imprisoned. He was a man accused. 
He was a man charged. He was not yet a man who knew the outcome of the verdict. And that uncertainty frames this entire letter. So imagine a a situation today on one of the shows we watch or something like that where someone has been charged but now is waiting to go to trial. That was Paul's situation. He was waiting. His alleged crime, though, was no small thing. If he was found guilty, it would result in his execution. If he was found not guilty, he would be free to return to his life as an apostle. So as Paul wrote, his situation was a waiting game to find out if his current role would continue or if he would go to heaven. Now, how would you handle that situation of waiting for the unknown? I can tell you in my natural state, I would be an anxious mess. I get anxious about anything that I don't know the outcome. But look at verse 20 and feel the weight of Paul's dilemma. This element exists of the unknown mystery which is in front of him. And he uses two words in one sentence that I love. And that is an expectation and a hope. And he puts those together and there's this overwhelming confidence in his soul. He was hopeful and he expected that when he went to trial, he would give a good account of Christ. He was hopeful and he expected that he would honor Christ in every single, every single way. That was his expectation. He did not think he would fall under pressure. He did not think he would compromise. He did not think that out of fear of death, he would make up another story and deny Christ. He didn't think so. But here's the point. He didn't know. He did not know what would happen to him tomorrow. He didn't know what the outcome of the trial would be. He didn't know if he would remain courageous. He did not know any facts about the future. He knew this and only this, that Christ was with him and my hope is in Christ, period. I am so grateful that Paul includes this about his life. Because here's what we see in his own testimony. There was no element of pride in him. There was no element of self-sufficiency. Rather, he lived honestly about what he knew and about what he did not know. Friends, we do not know what will happen tomorrow or later today or the next day or next week. Our confidence is in Christ and who he is. And when that sinks into our soul, we really are free to live joyfully today. One of my favorite stories from church history uh, is that of Martin Luther. And at our church, and with the Reformation Day coming around, we, we talk a lot about Luther and we'll sing his hymn, etc. If you know anything about Luther, you know in 1521, he made a famous statement. And that is, here I stand upon the word of God. I can do no other. And he was on a trial where his alleged crimes were that he was trusting in Christ and no other, and that the word of God was true. This was a two-day trial for Luther. But here's what you should know. It was only meant to be a one-day trial. But the first day that Luther stood on trial and faced all of his charges, he was asked if he recanted his views. And you know what Luther said at first? 
he asked if he could have more time to think about it. Was Luther unsure of his convictions? No, not at all. What scholars believe is that Luther was a man and he was scared. And he wanted to think a little more. He wanted to pray a little more. So he came back the next day with the famous, here I stand statement. But he was a man. He was scared and he was fearful. Yes, he later had enough courage, but it wasn't easy. When I say an honest assessment of our lives, here's what I mean. The pathway to joy includes our willingness to admit all that we don't know and the fears that are associated with those. The mysteries of the future, the outworking of God's providence, how a job search will actually conclude, how adult children will fare. Will our prayers be answered? Will they not be answered? We can go on and on and on with all that we don't know. And Paul could not have been more confident in whatever the Lord's will was. In verse 19, he said, I am going to be delivered, which means he is going to be out of this situation. Either he will die and be with the Lord, or the Lord will get him out of prison. He will continue his work. Either way, he's joyful. He might be in jail. He might not be in jail. Either way, God's will would be done. Here's the point. Proud people, self-righteous people, assume they know everything. Joyful people trust that the Lord will lead them right where he wants us to be. Period. Will your trust this morning be in the one who works all things out for his glory? All things out for his glory. See, joy is not found in your strength. Joy is not found in your knowledge. Maturity does not come from your ability to perform. Maturity comes in our trust of our Savior. All right, let's conclude here, verses 21 through 26, with this honest assessment of life and death. And these, these, are, these are beautiful words. These are hard words. We don't want to think like this, but verses 21 through 26, really, this is the heartbeat of the passage and really the heartbeat of the whole book. This is the argument for this joyful motto, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Again, Paul does not yet know which will be his verdict, but yet he's joyful even if he dies. Church, let me ask you this question. How could he have been joyful if he had known it was possible he was about to die? Our culture does not think that way. What on earth could be good about dying? What advantages are there? Seriously, we know the answer here at church, here in Christ, but in our culture, we focus all of our energy on how to live forever. Lisa and I are currently watching this Netflix documentary. I don't know if you've seen it about blue zones and centurions and it's how to live to be 100. It's kind of fascinating. It's not how Paul thinks, though. It's not Paul's view. Rather, see this. Paul loves life on earth. And he loved the idea of what awaited him in heaven at the exact same time. These passages reveal his pro-con list, if you will, 
of his hope to remain on earth or his hope to be in heaven. And what it reveals because of Christ, he's blessed either way. He's blessed either way. If the Lord brings him home to heaven, here is his statements. He'll have a permanent home. There'll be joy without suffering. He'll be in the presence of Jesus forever. He'll only have feasting for all of eternity. A complete deliverance from sin and brokenness, pain, sickness, etc. But if he gets to remain here on earth, then he has a life of faith. He'll have fruitful work. He'll see his friends again. He'll be engaged in the gospel. He'll have union with Christ. He'll have joy in the hope of tomorrow. You know what? For Paul, he was torn between the two. He wanted both. He wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of life. His death would simply transition his joy from earth to heaven, where he would be with Jesus forever. His desire was ultimately, though, to pray and to ask that he would remain a little longer on earth. And we think it was three to four more years that he had. Why? To help in the work of the faith of the church for their joy, for their progress. Because he knew their joy was not tied to their, uh, their, their death. Their joy was tied to Christ's life inside of them. Their joy was tied to the reality that their physical deaths was not the end of their joy. And likewise for us, our deaths are not the end of our joy. Our deaths are the continuation of it. So whether living for Jesus here in our union with him or living with Jesus in heaven, our joy is the same. It's the same with him. Let's prepare to come to the table this morning and let me close with this story. And many of you will know these folks. Uh, if you don't know Wayne and Sandra Marlowe, they are longtime members here of TCPC. Uh, dearly beloved, Wayne was an elder here for years and years and years. Sandra, a couple of years ago, was diagnosed with ALS. And as you know, ALS is just a horrible disease with no good news physically that typically ever comes. As I was studying about this passage and reading through this passage and thinking about this sermon and this idea of to live as Christ and to die as gain, I, I wondered if this passage had ministered to the Marlowe's or not. It would be hard not to with an ALS diagnosis, but I wasn't sure. So last week I called Wayne and just asked him, out of curiosity, if this passage had, had, had been significant in, in their lives. And if you know Wayne, you, would, you could picture him and hear him as he responded. When I, I brought up this passage, he simply said, Oh, you mean Philippians 1.21? I'm like, yeah, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He was like, yeah, yeah, that's meant a lot to us. We've already had it engraved on our tombstone. But then he, he said that in such a way that joy filled his heart. He's like, with this diagnosis, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, our joy is alive today because Christ is in us. We've already had it engraved on our tombstone. This is our life. We will be with Christ forever. Friends, this is our hope. This is our joy. If God has us live for another day, what an honor. We got to live for Christ. If God calls us home, what an honor. 
We'll be with Christ forever. Our story is this. To live is Christ. To die is gain. As we come around this table this morning, let's feast with this reality. Jesus cares for our lives so much. He gave up his. And he went to his throne where he has been praying for us since that time. And he is returning for us. And we will be with him forever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then we will transition into the Lord's Prayer and then we will come and feast with our Savior. Father, as we think of this topic, as we think of this reality for all of us, O Lord, in our day and in our time, it's, it's not easy for us. So we pray, O God, would you form our hearts in such a way that our joy is in you. That you are our source, you are our Savior, you are the one who loves us. And we can live today in confidence because of who you are and all that you have done and all that you will continue to do. You are our hope. Write that upon our lives today. And now, Jesus, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.